Church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. As you do so, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, very famous book written by a very famous theologian, he begins chapter 1 with a famous line. If you've never read the book, I would encourage you to read it. Here's the line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just a short distance down, Tozer continues. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. He says that to say what a church thinks or believes about God is of vital importance for that church. This morning, we're going to get a small glimpse of this, but instead of what we believe about God in general, we're going to narrow our focus to just the gospel. And that leads us to our main idea this morning. The most important information about a church is how the gospel is noticeably affecting it. The most important information about a church is how the gospel is noticeably affecting it. The most important information about a church is not how many people they have on a Sunday morning. The most important information about a church is not how much money do they bring in on a regular basis. The most important information about a church is not how many events do they put on. The most important information is how the gospel is noticeably affecting it. This morning we're entering the ninth topic out of about ten in Paul's letter, the resurrection. And it spans the entirety of chapter 15. But before Paul addresses the issue of the resurrection, he first clarifies the foundation of the resurrection. See, the resurrection is part of a grand narrative. That grand narrative that we're going to look at this morning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel simply means the good news. Maybe this morning you've heard the word gospel a whole lot. You've heard things about the gospel, the good news. But you maybe have never heard clearly what is the gospel. What does it matter? What does it do? That's what we're going to see this morning. Hopefully you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. We are about to engage in something right now that is otherworldly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, and we are about to read his word right now. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Holy God, as your word is preached this morning, I pray that you would open every heart in this building to receive the wondrous good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So Paul begins his passage here. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He doesn't use his typical beginning here, now concerning, and then introducing the next topic of the letter, but it's clear that we are entering into a new topic here. And he wants to begin by reminding them of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Paul tells us starting in verse 3. Look along with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Okay? Man owes a sin debt to God. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So what sin is, isn't necessarily that I broke a law. It's I broke God's law. And it's not just God's law that is written in a book on pages and paper. It is a law that has been written on every human heart since the moment of each of our conceptions. One can follow every man-made law to a T and still be guilty of divine treason against God. And this is true of every man and woman. Since all of us sin, we all owe a sin debt to God, and that debt is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Because you have committed divine treason against God, you deserve to die. But, that verse continues, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is it that Jesus gives us life when we owe death for our sin? Well, Paul tells us in our passage this morning in verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Jesus did not deserve to die. We do. Unless you think you don't deserve to die, let me try to make the point even clearer. You don't need the Bible to rebel against God. You do it daily. 
And even though you know you do it daily and you know what the penalty is, I guarantee you this, you'll do it again today. You'll do it again tomorrow. You'll do it again every day of your life as long as you live. Just like me. We all deserve to die. Christ did not. He was the perfect man, the God-man, the one and only. He was sinless, yet he still died for sin. That's not fair, we should think. Instead, what we think is, well, good. I mean, I, I'm glad that God did that. I, I, I deserve a chance to go to heaven. He died for our sin. One songwriter put it like this. It is a scandal. The scandal of grace. He died in the place of guilty sinners so that all who repent and trust in Jesus by faith and repentance will be saved and forgiven. It is a wonderful news. But that's not all Jesus did. Keep looking here. He was also buried. He was raised on the third day. And then he appeared to a whole bunch of people. He mentions at one point in here, more than 500 in verse 6 at one time. And at the time of the writing of this letter, most of them were still alive. So the Corinthians or anybody could go to those people and say, tell me, what was it like to see the risen Jesus? This is a historical event that is grounded in reality. Jesus was raised and appeared. All of these elements are important. How important? Look back in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance. It is of utmost importance. There is nothing that is ever going to come close to being as important as what I just shared. Ever. Now remember that Paul is giving this in the context of the church. We've gone through almost the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. What's it about? Largely, the church and the gospel. That's largely what it's about. So this is especially of first importance in God's church. Now the only reason that it matters to us what the gospel is, is because of what the gospel does for us. This morning, I'm going to refer to this as the evidential effects of the gospel. Evidential effects of the gospel. What that means is that the gospel has an effect on us and that it can be seen. There is evidence of what Jesus has done to us. The most obvious example of this is all these resurrection appearances here. Peter, the twelve, the crowd of five hundred, James, all the apostles, then to Paul. That's evidence of the gospel. And that is certainly an effect of the gospel, but this evidence and effect is external. Now, it's important. Don't get me wrong. Paul is about to use this to make a much larger point, but believe it or not, we have already passed over the most important effects of the gospel before we even get to verse 3. We've passed it up. Look at verses 1 and 2. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved. Notice how the gospel is spread throughout every ounce of this. He preached the gospel, they received the gospel, they're standing in the gospel, by the gospel they are being saved, unless they believe in vain the gospel. The first evidential effect, I'm going to give you five this morning, the first evidential effect of the gospel is faith. Paul preached it, and the Corinthians received it. That is, they accepted it as true and worthy of staking their lives upon. They decided to live in full agreement with it. The Bible has no category of someone who verbally accepts, but then physically rejects the gospel. That is to say, I believe in Jesus, but then live as though they don't know who Jesus is. So this faith is more than a verbal affirmation, but a staking of your life upon a reality. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So as the message of the gospel through God's word is proclaimed, faith comes from the reception of that news. Faith in the gospel cannot happen where the gospel is not proclaimed. There was a brother in Christ who did some Christian web comics a long time ago. I don't think he does those anymore. He's compiled some in some books. They're really good. If you want them, they're in my office. And you think, oh, I don't know, comics, that sounds kind of childish. They're very, very good. One of them, he quotes... Uh, it's, it's a saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, though most scholars will tell you he probably did not say that. And if he did, we will never be certain for sure because we don't have direct proof of it. But it's the idea, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And the comic has someone opening up a door for someone entering a restaurant, and the person walks through, and they stop and double back, and the person opening the door for them didn't say a word. And they come back and say, you know what? I need to tell you something. Based on your action here, I see now that I am hopelessly lost in my sin and that I must turn to faith in Christ to be saved. Will you tell me now how to be saved? The joke's pretty obvious. That person will never do that. <laughs> they won't do that. They'll walk in through the door. It requires speech, a proclamation of a truth. That's not to say that the point of the quote is not lost. We must also proclaim the gospel with our lives. But if we proclaim the gospel with our lives and never proclaim it with our lips, people will not be saved. They will not be saved. It doesn't happen via osmosis. Here's the gospel. And then they just accept it. You have to use your words. We have to use our words and proclaim the gospel. The simple reason that we don't see many come to faith in Christ is because, simply, we do not share the gospel. If you never share the gospel, you will never experience witnessing someone come to faith in Christ. It will always be indirect. Oh, look at what that person did. Oh, look at what that person did. But the Great Commission is intended for all Christians. Not just the professional Christians. There are no professional Christians. There is simply Christian. I am one and so are you. 
So the deficiency here is not in the gospel, it's in us. Our friends, our family, our co-workers, and our neighbors will not believe the gospel if we do not share it with them. So this is the most obvious evidence of the gospel itself. Belief, trust, faith. We know that someone is a Christian if they believe the gospel. And if they don't believe it, they are not a Christian. Number two, the second evidential effect of the gospel is sanctification. Sanctification. Garrett, that word is easily twice as long as it should be. What does that mean? Real simple. Growth in holiness. Increasing in repentance from sin. Garrett, repentance is too long. Turning. You are turning from sin more and more. Notice Paul says that the gospel is what's doing the saving. He says, by which, in verse 1, by which, which you received and which you stand, in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. Now notice Paul says the gospel is doing the saving in the present tense. Bear with me for a moment. In the Greek, they don't do past, present, future quite like we do. In English, our tenses have to do with chronology. Ten days ago, I ran. Maybe right this moment, I am running. Present tense. Future tense. Maybe tomorrow I will run. Maybe tomorrow I won't. The Greek tenses, instead of having to deal with chronology, they deal more with the state of being. So their version of past tense It's to say something has been done and it's already finished. It's complete. It's whole. Nothing else needs to happen to this. It's finished. And their version of the present tense describes something that is unfinished, but it's still happening. You see how it's similar, but it's different. Something could actually be finished right now chronologically, but they would use that past tense of it. So what Paul is saying here when he says, by which you are being saved, he's saying the gospel is saving you now, and it's going to continue to save you tomorrow, and it's going to continue to save you the next day, all the way until the end. So though Christians who believe the gospel have already been saved, that's the moment of faith, They are also being saved, and that is sanctification. This means that faith and repentance are not just the front door to the body of Christ. It is the flooring that runs through the entire house, so that every step you take is faith, repentance. Faith, repentance. You can never go anywhere in the body of Christ that doesn't require you to continue to walk in faith and repentance. If you continue to walk not in accordance with faith and repentance, the answer is simple. You're not in the house. You're not in the house. The Christian is still being saved from sin daily. Now, there's two implications here. Number one, no Christian is perfect. If we were perfect, it would not say by which you are being saved, 
ever in the scriptures. But in the scriptures, salvation is frequently referred to as having been completed at a moment and as having been uncompleted in the moment and then in the future as having will be completed in the moment. There is a past moment, a present moment, and a future moment. And because that future moment has not arrived, we are not perfect. If we were perfect, we would not continue to be saved. Here's the second implication of this. No Christian is unaffected. That is to say that there will be a continuous pattern of change in the Christian's life as he or she continues being saved daily by the gospel. The gospel has a continuous effect in us as Christians. Christians need daily doses of the gospel to continue growing as Christians. One reason we don't grow is because we have stopped giving ourselves daily doses of the gospel. Maybe we've settled for weekly doses of the gospel. Even then, maybe we've only really settled for an hourly dose of the gospel. A Christian or a church that professes to believe the gospel will show the evidence of being changed by the gospel. Now, there's a really important word here in verse 2, by which you are being saved if, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So here then is the third evidential effect of the gospel, perseverance, perseverance. This is one of the most important messages from the scriptures for the church in the Bible Belt today. Please hear me clearly. There is a such thing as vain belief. There is a such thing as belief that does not save you. And many Christians have it. And they don't know it. And they call themselves Christians, and we call them Christians. Because we do not know, and they do not know, that they are not really Christians. This is a terrifying reality. Especially when you couple it with the example that Jesus gives of the end. The kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. And he says, the road is wide. The path is wide that leads to destruction. The gate is wide. And many go through it. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Few will find it. We live as though that's backwards in the Bible Belt. Well, almost all of us are going to be there. But if Jesus' analogy holds true, even in this room, we might have to say, few will find the gate. Many will find the big gate to destruction. Few will find the narrow gate. It's a terrifying reality. To believe in vain uses a Greek word that means no purpose. To believe rashly, fruitlessly, 
So here's what it means. It's a claim to believe, but nothing comes of it. One brother said it like this. I'm going to change it slightly. There's a difference between faith as verbal affirmation and faith as conviction. The former dresses up for Sunday. The latter puts on Christ daily. If you have believed in vain, you will lack the evidence of true belief, saving faith. And it's only now that we enter into verse 3 where Paul reminds them of the events of this gospel. All of the appearances, the historical things that happened. And the order here is important. We have to start with why we need the gospel before we are ready to stake our lives on the gospel. There's an analogy I've heard of someone who's on a plane, and the gospel is the parachute that saves someone. And a man goes up to people and is trying to convince them to put this chute on because he knows the plane is going to crash. We've got an hour. The plane's going to crash. I need people to take this parachute. I have as many parachutes as there are people on the plane, but they're not putting them on. So he goes from person to person to person. Hey, put this on. No, nah, I don't. Look, everything's fine. The plane's not going to crash. Look, I'm telling you, uh, look, if you put this parachute on, it will be so comfortable. Look, there's heating elements on the inside of the liner. In fact, they say if you put the parachute on, it will actually stimulate your muscles and you'll receive relief in your back and your headaches will all go away. And you know, people start taking the parachute. Oh, it does that? Yeah, I'll put it on. They put the parachute on and they start riding in the plane and you know what they notice? The parachute's really uncomfortable. There's kind of this thing on the back and it keeps, and my headaches are still here. 30 minutes down the way, they're like, oh, this is just... Uh. And they take the parachute off. Yet this is how many of us picture sharing the gospel. We expect people to cling to the parachute because they need life. But they don't want life. They want comfort. And the gospel is not comfortable. So they take it off. When in reality... If the man had gone through and said, listen to me, I can prove to you there is a day that this plane will crash, and it is today, and it is in 59 minutes, listen. And they explain, and that person accepts it, and they believe it. They won't always believe it, but then some will. And they'll take that parachute and put it on, and now this uncomfortable thing in the back doesn't matter because this parachute's going to save my life. I will cling to this parachute. We have to start with why we need the gospel before we are ready to stake our lives upon it. And the reason we need the gospel is because every single thing in the Christian life depends on it. It is the ground of our faith, the power that is saving us, and what we must hold fast to if our belief is not to be in vain. So after... He reminds them of the basic truths of the gospel. We've already looked at them. Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised. He appeared. Paul ends in verse 8 here. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I want to give you the final two evidences together before we read these final verses. So that as I read the verses, you can see and feel them in Paul's words. Number four and five. 
humility and surrender. Humility and surrender. Look in verse 9, verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I am the least unworthy. This is not the only time Paul talks like this. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Ephesians 3.8 Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What Paul is voicing here is the same point that Jesus makes in his parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The problem here is obvious. The Pharisee was filled with pride, while the sinner was filled with humility and embarrassment. He was embarrassed for his sin. He couldn't even look up to God out of embarrassment and humility. He was humiliated. Now, what's not obvious in this parable is which of these two men we are. It's in our human nature to always think of ourselves as the good guy. Most of us don't think of ourselves as the bad guy. If there's disagreement, okay, well, there's the enemy, then there's me. That's how it works. That's how our nature ticks. Most of us would hear this parable and think, whew, yeah, that Pharisee is a jerk. I'm glad I'm not like him. But let's probe a little deeper here. How is it that we know the Pharisee was filled with pride? How is it for you to know that you're filled with pride? Almost every time we have a moment of pride, we do not recognize it. We need someone else from the outside to tell us. I see that truth in my life as I witness other lives. And it's so easy to see pride in others. And it's not until others point it out in me that I see, okay, I do the same thing. That is, why do I do that? Let's look at the prayer of the Pharisee. His prayer exposed what lies within his heart. Prayer has a way of doing that, revealing to us what it is that really lies in here. I wonder when you pray, what is it that you pray about? What is it that really lies in your heart? 
If I were to modernize the Pharisees' prayer, here's what it would be. God, I'm glad I'm not as bad as everyone else. There are some bad people in this world, and I'm not perfect, but I'm glad I'm a pretty good person. His prayer focused on the bad in others and the good in himself. However, the tax collector's prayer revealed a different heart. He didn't dwell on the state of others, and he didn't bring up any good that he had done. He could have done both of those, because other people do bad, and he surely did something good. But he didn't do that. Instead, he owned his sin and begged for mercy. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. The grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the one who receives and truly believes the gospel must be humble. And the one who has already received and believed must continue in humility. But that's not it. Paul gives another statement that seems to cut against the grain of humility here in verse 10. He says, by the grace of God I am what I am. There's the humility. And then we see here, his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very much like humility. But I want you to take this phrase and look at either side of it. Right before and right after. Right before, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. And then afterward, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So every step of the way, Paul gives all the credit for anything praiseworthy in himself to the grace of God. Paul, your understanding of the gospel is so clear by the grace of God. Paul, you're so effective as a missionary by the grace of God. If you only knew me, I have a thorn that I have prayed over and over, and God has not removed it, and he does this to keep me humble. He is ever aware of his shortcoming because he bathes in the gospel. So no, Paul's statement here doesn't cut against his humility. Rather, it reveals this last evidential effect of the gospel, which fits humility like a glove, and that is surrender. Paul didn't work hard to earn grace. He worked hard by grace. Look at the text here. He says in verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul did not do this working hard. Did he work hard? Yes. Was he the one that brought it about? No. It was the grace of God which is never in vain. What then was Paul's part in this whole thing? What did he do? surrendering to God through the gospel. He surrendered, then the grace of God took over and used him, and what did that look like? Working harder than any. But it was not Paul, and that's the humility. Here is the prayer of surrender. Lord, I cannot do it, but you can do it. So here I am, 
do it through me. That's the prayer that we pray at the moment of salvation. Lord, I cannot save myself. I can't be good enough. I need you to do it. I surrender to you. And that's what we do every day after as a Christian. God, I can't, I can't be patient enough. But you can do it. So here I am. You do it through me. This could be part of what it looks like for you to bathe in the gospel daily. Remind yourself of the gospel as you read God's word and then pray those gospel truths over yourself in humility and total surrender to Jesus. When we come to faith, we proclaim the gospel. I can do nothing. Jesus has done everything for me. And so we proclaim the gospel every day of our lives after we are saved. I can do nothing. Jesus does everything through me. This is what Paul and the apostles believed. This is what they preached. This is what the Corinthians received. This is what they stood in. This is what they were being saved by. This is what they held fast to, the gospel. It is the lifeblood of the church. Let me end with a final warning from what Paul said in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And if you look back in verse 10 here, he says, Of that grace that we received through belief, it was not in vain. When we believe, when we receive, God's grace is never given in vain. God's grace had a noticeable effect in Paul's life. There was evidence of the gospel, evidence of grace. And that evidence wasn't a prayer. It wasn't a walking down the aisle. It wasn't a baptism. That's not how we know that God has done a work in someone's life. Someone can get wet in that water right there and have no other evidence, and that person should never believe they will be in heaven. That's not the evidence Paul gives here. God's grace had a noticeable effect, and the effect was an increasing conformity to the image of Christ. God's grace is never in vain, but for some your belief might be in vain. It's not that God's grace was in vain, it's that your belief might be in vain. You are not being saved from your sin, you walk in it regularly. You maybe have said, well, I will die for Jesus, but you never live for Jesus. In fact, by the way you live, proclaiming Christ but denying him with your actions, what you're saying is, I follow Jesus. Let me show you what Jesus is like. Jesus is a gossip. Jesus is an adulterer. Jesus is a liar. And you think God is going to let you blaspheme his name? God cares about his name. His grace is never given in vain. But our belief might be in vain. And that is a terrifying thought. 
Maybe it's that you don't stand or walk in the humiliating reality of the gospel because you've actually got your life pretty put together. You actually don't need God to walk in the gospel daily. In fact, you've managed to do that for a long time without him. Your belief might be in vain. Maybe it's that you haven't surrendered to God because you are all too aware that you don't deserve God's grace. Your problem instead is that you underestimate just how gracious God is. I've done terrible things. He could never save someone like me. He saved Paul, the chief of sinners. The man who went around killing Christians, looking for churches so he could just kill Christians. And God saved him and made him an apostle. He can save you. So the question this morning for us is, what does your life evidence? Your own moral ability? Your own ability to do what the Bible says without the power of God? That is not the gospel. Does your life evidence your own moral ability or the grace of God? Are you one of the ones who will have believed in vain? This morning, I want to invite you to believe sincerely right now. And to the rest of us, church, may the evidence of the gospel shine forth in us daily and publicly as we bathe in the truth of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord God, as we recite the gospel truth this morning, I am reminded of my life of sin. That even now, Lord, I turn to sin regularly. The things I do not want to do are the things that I keep doing. And the things that I want to do are the things that I seem to fall short over and over again. But thanks be to you and you alone that by your grace I am being transformed by your grace, we as a body of Christians are being transformed. We are not yet what we will one day become, Lord, but we affirm that we are not what we once were. And it has nothing to do with us, Lord, but it is solely by grace. Your grace is never in vain. And we see that in our lives as you are continuing to change us and transform us by the gospel. Thank you for your graciousness. Lord, for those souls in this room this morning that have believed in vain. Their roots are not deep because their belief is not genuine. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring about conviction of sin, a humble realization 
of the eternal stakes of this exact moment. I pray that you would cause us all to believe either for the first time or to believe more sincerely, more truly, the gospel as we are being saved by it daily. We ask you to do all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.